Hi, you're listening to Thoughtful Wellness Revolution, where we believe wellness isn't wellness if it's just for you. We're your hosts, Zara and Hien. And before we get started, please make sure to give us a five-star rating and review. Even though we're a podcast that believes in decolonizing, we're still bound to the algorithm. So every little bit that you can help us out, we really appreciate it. And we thank you for all the support. Let's get into it. Hey, friends. Welcome to the podcast today. We've got Hian and I here today. Before you're going to hear our interview with my oldest, not all you'll hear in the pod, you'll hear it in the episode, my oldest friend, Alicia. Um, And we'll just start with a little check-in. Hian, what's on your mind today? Today, what's on my mind is the weather. because it is very cold but very sunny where I'm at um I think I think there are places in the U.S. that's having like a winter storm warning I don't know if where I'm at is considered a part of that like I'm hearing it's like really cold in like Texas and some other places um but yeah it's just like really sunny like you can kind of see um there's like sunshine coming in for me and yet it's super cold and so that's what's on my mind is like, what the hell is going on with the climate? But I've been feeling that way a lot, as you know, Zara. So that's what's on my mind today. What's on your mind today? Um, well, first, I just want to say the weather thing that our weather went from being in the 50s to now we're in the 80s uh, this past week. So we're also having weird weather and it does look very sunny in your space today. Um, but what's on my mind today Um I am excited that we just talked to you and you guys are just going to listen to our, our episode with Alicia um, just because I think she is, uh, I am biased, but everyone else thinks so too. So is it a bias? Um, she is brilliant and so kind and was able to make her highly academic and skilled work accessible to me, an idiot um (laughs) self-proclaimed um but yeah that's kind of what's on my mind I don't know and I think it's exciting yeah I will say that um she is very cool and I also feel like she makes me who is from my own experiences in undergrad I'm so like academia reluctant you know like I just feel very like um not not that I don't think academia or academics aren't like important but I just feel very like far removed from that world just speaking as somebody who once thought that I wanted to become a professor and like go through like the whole process of grad school and like get a PhD one day like that used to be a dream of mine but I'm like so far removed from it now um but just hearing her talk makes me like intrigued and excited and so happy that like there's someone like her um in like academia and grad school and all that that is such a great way to put it because I if there had been if I had had TAs like Alicia when I was in undergrad I probably and if my professors had not said who if you're gonna have such a hard time in grad school with the stuff you want to study I definitely would have been more like but with People like Alicia, you're like, oh yeah, there are people who are doing like brilliant, amazing work that is 
helping to shift the world in a way we all want it to go. If you're listening to this podcast, we generally assume you're trying to move in the same direction, which is away from the soul crushing foot of capitalism. Uh, you don't have video, but my eyes just got really sad and staring off into the distance thinking about that. But yeah, so that's our episode we have for you all today. Hian, is there anything we want to add before our listeners get started? Um, I will say, you know, be prepared to learn and be intrigued from an accessible academic. That's that's what I would say. Hey, friends. Today we're here with Alicia, a postdoc researcher who recently got her PhD in business and human rights located in Nottingham, UK from Orlando, Florida. I guess not technically Orlando. Um, Alicia, what's on your mind today? Hi, Zara. Hi, Yen. Um, On my mind today, I think, one, I'm really, really excited to finally be speaking with um, my best and longest, oldest, not oldest person, but long oldest friendship um, in my life. Um, and speaking on a really cool podcast about my work and research. Um, and then less positively, I am also feeling quite sad because just before this, I was reading the news about the bombing in Pakistan in Peshawar. And that is a place where um, I, my most recent research study, we're working with um, women and trans women in Peshawar. And so I've been like frantically contacting everybody and it's, yeah, just really sad. And there was one last year. And so, yeah, just a bit sad, but happy to be with you all. Wow. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. One, yes, I probably should have said this in the beginning. Alicia is my oldest. I see it is. That's a weird one to say. Say my oldest friend, but you're not like oldest in age or my oldest in time we've known each other. Um, so we are very excited to have you. And I also was sad about the bombings in Peshawar, but I just, I think it's really funny when you don't, I don't think you know this story. When I first was introduced to the Enneagram and I was trying to figure out everyone's type, I thought you're my oldest friend. So I was like, I thought you must've been my type. Cause I was like, I don't know, I can't type you because you are such a like warm and generous person. And I think it's really interesting the way you're talking about this bombing where you're like, oh, I immediately was like, I need to reach out and see and like get to all these people and see if they're okay. And I think that is really indicative of like what people say in the Enneagram where Sometimes sevens are labeled as quote unquote selfish. I don't, that's people who know the Enneagram know that that's not true because when you like, they'll say like when there's an accident, it's usually the sevens who are the first like get on a plane and go see things. So I do think it's very nice to hear, I don't know, just you being you and that being really representative and beautiful of like the like depth of the seven. Um, but I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about your work and your PhD. So if you could tell us a little bit more about your work with the Coalition of the Immokalee Workers and uh, what is the worker-driven social responsibility model? Yeah, of course. Um, I think maybe 
to contextualize um, my research with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, I'll talk a little bit about um, how I came to um, a PhD in business and human rights. Um, you can cut it if it's boring, um, <laughs> but I think it kind of makes or helps everything make sense um, because I had never done any sort of um, education in business before my PhD. I I still don't really know that much, to be honest. Um, but so I did my undergrad in human biology because I was going to be a doctor. Then I failed OCHEM. And so I did my master's in sociology. And um, during my master's, I focused on, uh, I did social psychology and I looked at anti-trafficking. My like main area of interest at this point was anti-human trafficking. My dad, as I know, is from um, Tanzania and he worked in Uganda up until before COVID. And so um, we had an orphanage there when I was growing up in high school and we would go. And that's where I first learned about human trafficking from the kids. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I couldn't believe it was a real thing. And so that was like, okay, that's what I'm going to study in school. That's what I'm going to do in my life is try and like help figure this out. Um, and so I did a lot of research um, on um, human trafficking, but from the survivor side. Um, so I worked in safe houses um, with victims and did advocacy work um, and was kind of setting up to do a PhD in sociology. Um, but then uh, midway through my master's, as I knows, I was in a really bad accident in Costa Rica. I broke all my bones. Um, the U.S. Embassy had to call my parents because it was like, you know, real bad. Um, and thanks to friends like Zara and my family and a lot of amazing doctors and the medevac, um, I, you know, had a long recovery but healed, went back and finished my master's, which is great. But I also had a whole lot of medical bills and medical debt. And so my lovely parents who took very good care of me um, gently nudged that maybe I should get a job that paid me money um, after college instead of going right into um, unpaid or nearly unpaid academia work. Um, and so I ended up taking a job um, that one of my professors used to have at Apple. And I don't like, oh, so poor you, you had to work at Apple. But I was pretty upset. I just like had studied all this stuff and I wasn't, you know, I felt like I was kind of um, uh, selling out, you know, and like using all this education I'd learned for something that I didn't care about. Um, and so, yeah, I was all kinds of bummed. However, like many things in the world that don't make sense at the time, now it makes so much sense. Because while I was working, I worked at Apple for three years. And while I was there, first of all, I was on a team of all women, which is very rare in tech. And they were incredible women. They were all, everyone except for me was a Stanford sociology PhD. And they were all brilliant and had done really cool research. They're so smart. They're really amazing managers. I learned so much from them about research. Um, we did research around the world. Um, but also importantly, at Apple, I learned a lot about, I wasn't in the CSR department, but I wanted to be hung out there a lot, I had mentors there who I'm still in touch with. And it was through one of my mentors there that I found out about the PhD that I did. Um, because 
seeing CSR and seeing the supply chain of Apple, I really learned about um, businesses' role on human trafficking and other human rights abuses. And I hadn't really thought about that at all before because I'd been focusing on the victim side. And so I really wanted to learn more about, you know, this connection between business and at the time um, human trafficking and what is the role of business like what how do they make it worse how could they make it better because especially apple is like so mondo it has so much leverage um and so that led me to pursue this phd that is in a business school but they had a human rights center in the business school and at the time it was in manchester and at the time that was one of only two human rights centers in a business school I think there's three now. The first one was New York, then Manchester, and now there's one in Geneva. Um, but it's really amazing to get to study um, business and human rights alongside, you know, and really um, understand better the relationship between the two. And so for my research, um, which Zara was um, mentioning, I did a case study with the Fair Food Program, um, which is an initiative uh, developed by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And I did the case study um, for my PhD, but I also, one thing I learned during PhD is a thing that's really hard that I didn't know about because I'd only done research at Stanford and for Apple is access is really hard. Like people just don't open your, their doors and let you do research, which they had when you, you know, do research on behalf of Apple or Stanford. But I was able to do this case with the Fair Food Program because my doctoral supervisor had worked with the office of the office of the high commissioner for human rights and they were doing a project um, called the accountability and remedy project um, and they there was like their project was really high level but they wanted people to do deep dives into um, organizations and because my research um, after my first year i decided i wanted to focus on remedy for business related human rights abuses I think that's really important and understudied. Like, there's a lot of focus on how to prevent human rights and how to protect human rights. Um, but human rights happen. And so you have to study how to remediate when those rights are, are abused. And so that's what I wanted to study. And so I decided I wanted to research the Fair Food Program because they're, I knew about them before. They're from Florida. They grew up in South, or they came out of South Florida in 2000. I think they're officially established in 2011. Um, and yeah, it's this amazing initiative um, that was developed by workers, by farm workers in South Florida. Um, and the workers are from mostly Mexico, Haiti, and Guatemala. And they had this realization in the early 2000s. Um, they used to do like all these really cool actions against their growers um, for, you know, the conditions on uh, farms are, you know, you know, just, terrible there's forced labor there's sexual assault it's really awful and these workers a lot of them are not documented and so they don't have any sort of voice or recourse and so they used to do these amazing protests and um, hunger strikes against their employers and they won some cases they prosecuted some forced labor cases but they realized like you know even though they were winning bit by bit they still weren't being treated like they were human and so they were like came together they're really based on today's work and they have these popular education dialogic meetings and they were talking about you know they've been asking their growers for a raise in wages for more money because you know they haven't gotten an increase in wages in so long 
But every time they ask their grower, they say, well, we can't pay you more because the brands at the top, they're paying us less and less. Um, and so uh, the workers decided like, okay, instead of targeting the growers, why don't we target the buyers? Um, because if they have the power to decrease prices and make our living conditions worse, then maybe they have the power to raise prices and protect our working conditions. And so that led to the Taco Bell boycott, um, which I remember, I don't know if you remember that, it was like all, it was five years before it got, or six. Um, and their slogan was like, Taco Bell makes farm workers poor. It was huge. It was like all across the country. Um, and it ended up with Taco Bell signing a legally binding agreement with these workers that said that they'll only purchase uh, crop tomatoes from farms in Florida that comply with these standards that the workers set themselves like fair trade didn't set it or reinforced lines or some external body didn't set it like the workers know what they need so they set the standards which I think is really cool and then Taco Bell agreed to pay workers a penny more per pound um, for the tomatoes that they pick which seems like a little but workers get paid about I think it's 68 cents for a 32 pound bucket of tomatoes. So like a 32% increase on each bucket of potatoes is like a pretty significant increase. And I think more importantly, it draws that connection between the buyers at the top and the workers at the bottom, which like, you know, in our capitalist society, you know, the brands really try and distance. Those aren't our workers. They're not our workers. They're not our workers, but they are their workers. You know, they're buying their tomatoes. And so it draws this really cool link because it, like shows up on their paycheck as uh, bono de comida justa so they can see like directly how much they're getting from the brands at the top. Sorry, that was a really, <laughs> that was a PhD in like several minutes. <laughs> no, that was so good. Okay. I do want to ask because you, and I know this goes back into your story when you're working at Apple, but what is CSR? Oh, yes. Um, so CSR is corporate social responsibility. So when businesses do good stuff, um, it's their CSR department. And not to say none of the CSR departments do good stuff, but um, I mean, businesses are less evil without a CSR department, but CSR also allows business to kind of like uh, greenwash, bluewash, just put on a show of like what they're doing. And the point of CSR is right, it's corporate social responsibility. What the fair food program is, is worker driven social responsibility. So rather than the corporate corporation driving how to be social or socially responsible and CSR importantly, it's always voluntary, right? Their standards, like we follow these standards, voluntary. A big thing in worker driven social responsibility is the workers realize like voluntary standards just don't work. Like maybe they've like had some wins, but they can't be depended on to protect the rights of workers, especially at the base of supply chain. So worker driven social responsibility, importantly, is driven by the workers. So the workers set the standards and it's legally enforceable. It's not or not necessarily legally enforceable, but enforceable um, either by like markets, you know, not being able to buy from suppliers who don't agree. Um, yeah, so that's the big difference between the two. And worker-driven social responsibility kind of arose in recognition of corporate social responsibility not working, especially for workers at the base of supply chains. Okay, so corporate responsibility is 
basically them being like, look, we're good. We we're doing a thing. And like what gets them like public good, right? Like public social karma versus like worker social driven responsibility where it is like what is actually going to make the lives of these people better. Yeah, definitely. And I don't want to say no good has come of CSR. Like huge changes have like come from CSR, but it's kind of like you say, it only goes so far. Um, and a lot of CSR tends to be like corporate philanthropy, um, like uh, without like maybe addressing their own supply chain. Like for example, I remember when I was at Apple, they won some award on modern slavery because they were hiring um, survivors of human trafficking to work in Apple stores, which they that's amazing. They should do that. However, they're not looking at the forced labor in their supply chain and under the same scrutiny, you know, and so the idea that uh, somewhat uh, organization who is like it's widely known that there is forced labor in like subcontracted supply chains of Apple, that they would win a modern slavery award because they've done this other thing. So a lot. Yeah. So that's a, one of my big problems with CSR is it's very selective, like you kind of get to pick oh, I'm going to care about this issue. I'm going to care about this environmental issue. Um, but you don't have to, it doesn't require you to really look at um, your company operations and structure as a whole, I think. Okay, this, I'm sure I don't know enough about this issue to be like, this is exactly correlative to this. But I think it kind of reminds me of like the way M&Ms and Mars is being, is getting in trouble for like, child labor and slavery laws while also they're like look see we're gonna get rid of the the m&m thing like right similar okay yeah Yeah. and i do i do want to one of the things that i really like right now is that is kind of a struggle like i want companies to find that because bad stuff is happening so part of like what i want and what i think is kind of it has to, I think it has to be like a cultural shift where like when we find issues in supply chains, we don't like automatically um, be like, oh, that business is so evil and awful. Look how they have child labor. They have this, they have this. Like, I think that is in every large business. I think it should almost be applauded when we find it and then figure out how it's going to be addressed. I think like one example that I really love is Tony Chocolonely. They find child labor, they find forced labor in their supply chain and their cocoa supply chain, and then they publish it. They tell everyone about it and like to show how the cocoa industry is just like ramp with this stuff. And then, but then they talk about what they're doing to address it. So I think like um, we should almost celebrate companies who are open and transparent about what they found in their supply chain and the steps they're taking to address it, knowing that they're not going to be able to eradicate um, you know, child labor or modern slavery in a year, but that the fact that they're finding it and then working to eradicate it, I think is should be celebrated rather than us celebrating brands that say, oh, we there's none because they're lying. You know, they're just not looking um, because if they were looking, they would certainly find it. And I think it's, yeah, it's hard to shift. Like, how do you celebrate someone who's like talking about how they have forced labor in their supply chain? But I think like there needs to be some sort of shift where we let we want encourage companies to find it so that they can fix it instead of um yeah like poo-pooing all over companies who report anything less than perfect in their you know reports 
I feel like it sounds like you're saying that it is a good thing when there's transparency, knowing that we don't live in a perfect world. Uh, because I think like it is hard to receive knowledge or news that there is, you know, child slavery or human trafficking in the supply chain. Um, and so it's easy to think like in my head, I automatically think, okay, well, I'm just going to cancel this company or I'll, I'll boycott it. Like without really thinking of like the more practical steps of like to make sure we actually get what we want, which is like those harmful things not happening anymore or those harmful things happening less. Um, and so, yeah, I, I see what you mean about quote, like celebrating it, meaning like bringing it to light because otherwise how how will we deal with it if it's just a company pretending it doesn't exist? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even like within CSR and business and human rights, there's been a bit of a shift, like a similar shift where before when companies like big companies would find uh, issues with their suppliers, like they would find child labor, they would find forced labor. They used to just be expected and, you know, the practice was to not use that supplier anymore. Um, and that was kind of what everyone did was like, yeah, how can you use a supplier that has forced labor or child labor? But what that meant was then what happens to all those people at the factory? Like, what, what are you doing more worse? Yes, because now you've just left. And then it would also mean that companies would look less hard because they're like, okay, well, if I find it, then I have to find a new supplier. And so there's been this shift now where most companies are in their um, code of conduct or whatever, their standards, they usually talk about working with their suppliers to help them like address the issues rather than it's most people like unless it's like a really severe systemic problem, most big companies now will work with their suppliers to help them get to up to code, um, which I think is a positive shift because certainly just leaving and cutting ties does not do anyone good. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I like that because it is, I don't know if you watch the show, The Good Place, like where they talk about like, uh, nobody can get into heaven because the intricacies of modern day life are so much that it's like, you can't not do a quote unquote bad thing. And it and that's kind of like what these companies are all facing as well. And what we're all facing is like, if I see a bad thing happening with M&Ms and I'm like, oh, I just won't eat that anymore. It doesn't solve the problem. Like, and if they just cut it, like, because that company doesn't really care if one person stops buying it, or if like a hundred people stop buying it, or if you have like a worker driven coalition that's saying, don't do this because this is affecting us. It kind of is, it's, it's worker driven versus just being like, oh, I'm going to cancel them. I'm done with that. And like people like stepping out of like businesses, stepping out of major areas and being like, oh, we were your major form of income for a lot of the people in this community. And now we're just like gone. So wow, that's exactly. really interesting. Okay. And I remember thinking this when you first said, I'm going to go to business school. And I went, what? Um, <laughs> yep, now I'm doctor business. Yeah, your doctor business. <laughs> and so like I but when you told me what you were working on, I was like, oh, that's so cool. I didn't know people in business school could do that. Would you mind talking a little bit more about 
you how are there a lot of people like you in business schools now because obviously you think about business school and you're like oh gonna be the CEO of a fortune 500 company or now MBAs are so common that that's not the thing you think of necessarily but so yeah are there more people like you in business school should we be excited for this and can you talk about the idea of decolonizing business school is it possible what do you know about it yeah yeah um I'll take your question in a couple parts first um and this is just my personal experience. Um, some people might disagree, but what I found, at least at my university, at my business school, was that there is a huge difference between undergraduate business students, or undergraduate and MBA business students are kind of together. And then business school PhDs are like, oh, they're just, you know, by looking at them really um, and like speaking with them for a minute who is different because the PhD students are researching like, or at least the PhD students who I spent time with. I was in the Work Inequalities Research Institute at the university. So in that there was not a ton of us, but like a solid crew of people researching precarious contracts and like global value chains and um forced displacement um of workers and migration and so there is it's not i wouldn't say it's massive but it's certainly big i didn't know about it at all either i didn't i yeah i had an idea of what business school was and i yeah so th there is a small contingency in uh and it's probably bigger than i would say because i go to conferences full of academics who are doing um research that i would not have thought of in business schools but certainly business schools are still majority what you think that they are, um, like capitalist machines, <laughs> basically. Um, and I say that also because I TA'd a class um, my, my last year. And when you see what business school students are learning, you're like, no wonder the world is, can I curse on this podcast? It's fucked, yeah real fact because this is like what our future business leaders are learning like still it's really yeah um so the world makes sense the the sad the evilness of the world makes sense when you sit in like an undergrad or mba business school classroom um however that also makes me excited almost to teach in a business school which i never <laughs> thought in like five million years I would never thought I would be in a business school, never mind a PhD, and then to teach in a business school. But the idea that you could even get, not that you're going to be able to change massive amounts of, you know, get all business MBA students to care about the world or anything. Um, but like the idea that you could get these MBA future leaders to have even a second thought about like that there might be something else outside of like, profit for them and their shareholders like that maybe businesses have some other responsibility like even getting them to question that like have a double take I think is that impact is huge um, and really exciting to me and like I taught business ethics and it was so funny because at the beginning of the class and the, I mean these kids were undergrads so undergrad students are really exciting to teach because you can still they don't really know what they want they're just undergrads um and but still when they came in all of them were like yeah I'm like you need to make money and I'm gonna be a businessman and blah 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 and then you know we would talk about things like 
real life issues like the Rana Plaza explosion or um, other big business dilemmas that like businesses have caused. And then just ask questions about like, well, who's responsible for all those people who died or who did? And not everyone agreed, but some students really were like, oh, you know, I, I never really thought about it. I guess the business, it was really the, bu- the business really should have done that. And like for me, I was sitting there like, oh, yeah, but do you think so? Um, so, yeah. And then the, your other question, which I can answer less because it's um, something I have only recently um, been getting into, is about decolonizing the business school. Um, but what I can say about it is um, I recently started working with this professor who is this really cool, really cool professor. He's pretty badass. His name is Bobby Banerjee. And he works at Bayes Business School in London, which used to be until a few years called Cass Business School, but they changed their name um, because Cass was a huge slaveholder. So, um, and he wrote this manifesto on uh, how to decolonize the business school, which is pretty accessible. Really, I highly recommend it to um, anyone. He published it, I think. 2021 and it's just like it's like a list of uh 13 like pretty practical steps um that you would need to take to decolonize a business school and a lot of it is really um reflecting on the colonial history of business schools and businesses business schools as kind of this capitalist machine that is derived from colonialism and so um he critiques a lot and rightly so and I find found it really insightful to learn about um his critique of like diversity movements and equality diversity and inclusion um as kind of this co-option of the decolonization movement um and so oh sorry hang on oh (laughs) yeah Hang on. Read mode. Read out loud. Deactivate. Read. Okay. Funny story. Before this interview, I was cooking, but I had put on read out loud the manifesto so I can listen to the manifesto um, just to, you know, get some talking points. But yeah, let me just see what he says about the the diversity movement. Yeah, he says, the liberal democratic project of diversity disavows its own position as a neutral site, which alone diversity could be proclaimed. Um, And he talks about how diversity creates this kind of abstract equality where um, diversity gets to be similar to how corporate social responsibility is just the corporation deciding how to be uh, socially responsible. Diversity movements by universities are these institutions deciding like what it means to be diverse. Um, And he quotes Angela Davis saying, diversity is the difference that makes no difference. Diversity is a change that brings about no change, which I think is says it like really well. Um, so yeah, so I think to decolonize the university, you have to go beyond that and really um, reflect on and come to terms with the colonial history and capitalist history and really, um, and how that shapes even the way school it's taught the students who are chosen um, and yeah, really a structural kind of systemic uh, 
change as well as like you know the scholars that are taught and the theories that are taught and rather than just removing them and replacing them with you know scholars from the global south really reflecting on what it means that this has been taught for so long and so it's kind of a process of unlearning to relearn rather than just like packing on throwing in some scholars of color wow i really love that because i think so often the idea especially there's like a lot of anti-intellectualism going on right now where the idea is just like oh see colleges are bad they're just white institutions set up by colonialism and capitalism which like you're not wrong but also you know like what are we just gonna stop reading books and stop learning and stop using a system that does benefit us in some ways where we have people like you who are going to school and like learning how to have both better help like worker driven responsibility models you know I don't know it's interesting to me and I think that's really cool do you think it's a thing that could be applied is it like just for business schools can it be applied to all universities like where like does the manifesto have specific limitations and or do you know other people who are doing things in a broader range with university yeah um so the decolonizing business school manifesto came out in 2000 21, but then there was this other manifesto um, by Keele University um, that is decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and a quote, and they actually quote the Keele manifesto for decolonizing the curriculum in the business school one. And it says decolonization involves identifying colonial systems, structures, and relationships and working towards challenging those systems. It's not integration or simply the token inclusion of intellectual achievement of non-white cultures. Rather, it involves making a paradigm shift from a culture of exclusion and denial to the making of space for other political philosophies and knowledge systems. And so the Keel Manifesto is also incredible. Um, and that one is broader. It's more just about decolonizing the curriculum. And that one was before. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. And then this last question we kind of phrased to everyone, we used to phrase it just specifically in the context of wellness, but you are welcome to answer it in the context of like worker rights or business school or wherever you feel it is applicable to you. It's like, what's one thing you want to see more of in your field and one thing you want to see less of? Um, well, I'd like to see more of them, we kind of already talked about this, but um, businesses finding fault in their supply chains and the world being okay and supportive of that as long as it's directed towards action um, to lessen it. Um, and I'd also like, along the same lines, I'd like to see more alternatives to our current business model. Um, such as worker-driven social responsibility and other approaches. Um, and then I would like to see less uh, talking and more listening and more action grounded in that listening, um, particularly to voices who are traditionally unheard or silenced. Beautiful, thank you. Um, yeah. Oh. If people would like to get in contact with you, this is a question I always forget. Hien is good about this. Um, if, there, if people would like to get in contact with you, is there a place they can do that? Yes. Like, do um, I won't give you my 
well, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, which I heard one of your other um, people do that, uh, which is Alicia, A-L-Y-S-H-A, Shivji, S-H-I-V-J-I. Um, yeah, if you LinkedIn me, then I can send you my email. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, we love talking to you, Alicia. And thank you all for joining us. Yeah, thank you both. This has been so fun. So this is our post interview with Alicia and it was so great. I learned a lot and I just so appreciate you having your longtime friend on our show, Zara. Um, what are some of your reflections? Um, one that was so cool and exciting and also a little nerve wracking for me. Um, as I said, five million times now, I've known Alicia for like, I don't know, more than 25 years and to I was trying to be quote-unquote professional I'm never professional on this podcast I've never felt the need to be professional on this podcast but I was like no Alicia's gonna be on I gotta be professional and I was like getting really nervous and it's like okay calm down you've known this person your entire life um it's fine uh and I don't want to say I was surprised by how much I learned just because Again, I've known her forever, so I do know that she's brilliant, and I always learn something from her, but I was so pleased with how easily it seems she makes things accessible to understand, because, like, for me, it's the end of the workday. For you, it's midday. For her, it's the evening. It's, like, late at night, and I was worried that she would talk, and my brain would just be like, I can't grasp onto anything, but the concepts were clear the ideas were clear. I just think it was brilliant. Um, yeah. And it was very cool to learn, especially as people who are very focused on decolonizing on this podcast, that there is so, not so much, but there's a, a good chunk of work going on in the idea of decolonizing in business and in business school as capitalism slowly rips us all apart from the inside out. So what about you? <laughs> No, I love everything, including that last part that you just shared. Well, a lot of what Alicia shared had me thinking, how did we get here? You know, like there, like I just keep thinking, like, oh my gosh, like how did we get to a point where there is like, yeah, and just about every industry, there's like exploitation and there is sadly, you know, like forced labor and like child slavery essentially, you know, with like how the like the in our like supply chains and stuff and so it really just makes me think first of like you know there's no ethical consumption under capitalism um but like to the extreme <laughs> you know I I've just really I just really like felt that saying um and also just I I think in my mind when I know about these things existing in the world, I'm very much like, oh my gosh, how did we get here? And I want to go, I don't know, maybe this is a foreign me, Zara, you could tell me, like, want to go into the past and kind of stay there and like obsess over it and be sad. But what I liked about everything Alicia shared was like, there's this sense of like, um, from how did we get here? And we got kind of know, you know, I'm sure she knows way more about like the history of all this shit. But like, I know it's like, capitalism and colonialism but she's sharing like okay and where are we going from here 
Like, what are we going to do about it? Like, what are some people doing about it? Like, what are some things that have worked? And um, I just really appreciate that sort of, uh, I don't know, there's like a delightness to it. Like, there's like a, and, you know, she talks a bit about like how it is a good thing when companies find out um, that there's like horrible things happening, like, you know, child slavery and like the supply chain or whatever, um, because then they have to do something about it or they can try to do like address it versus when it's like um, if they were to just have corporate social responsibility that like um, pretends it doesn't exist or that companies may not want to like dig deeper because then they then won't be able to use that supplier anymore. And so um, I don't know. There, I just love that sense of like, and this is where we can go from here because God knows I need that. Um, so yeah, Zara, you can, you can share your thoughts. <laughs> um, yes, I do want to say, I think obviously not everything anyone does is type related, but I do want to say that is one of the beauties of like grounded seven energy, because it is very much like sevens are future planners. What can we do coming up? What can, what are the next steps? And I think i it's interesting. I use this quote. I used, I use this quote. It's fucking my own goddamn words from a different episode. Anyways, there's repurposing content on our social media. And I was quoting myself about how we need to look to the future and figure out that's going to give us hope, right? Because it is so easy to get lost in the past of like, look at all the shit that has gotten us here and then get stuck in the present, which I often do where it's like, there are so many things that need to get done. How do you prioritize? What do you do? And then it is really nice to see the seven energy of like, here's what we can do. These are, yes, it's a bad thing has happened. A bad thing is happening. But instead of, which I lovely talked about, like you don't just shut it off as a business or try to hide it, right? You want people to acknowledge it and say like, oh yes, we know this is wrong and now we can fix to do something. Like we can work to fix it to do something because otherwise people are just like, oh, I can't do anything about it. Why do I even think about it? Like uh, we get stuck. I don't know. It is really nice to hear like hopeful optimism about it and know that people are doing that and thinking about it and it is happening like on a bigger scale because that is so true where we think about like, human trafficking and slave labor and all these things like they're happening on big scales and I don't I I just thought about this it would be I'd be curious to know more of where prison slave labor and businesses that are involved because like Victoria's Secret is made by slave labor of the U.S. prisons and stuff right um So I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see how that all works out, but it is like happening on such a big scale. I don't know. So it's nice to hear people and businesses. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say businesses. That's giving businesses too much credit. I like to hear that people and workers are trying to address these issues. Yeah, I I like that as well. This idea of um what is it? What is what was the term? Is like worker, like worker oh. social responsibility. Yeah, the worker driven model of social responsibility versus corporate social responsibility. Yeah, I think it. Once again, I'm just like, once again, it demonstrates the need for the like bottom up power versus like the top down. 
which is very, again, similar to what we talked about on our last podcast with Sexy Soup Dumplings. If you haven't heard that um, podcast, go ahead and give it a listen. I'm going to plug all our episodes as I always do. But I just feel like I just really appreciate, um, you know, that there are people who dedicate their time and energy into trying to solve these problems And I think that's a part that gives me hope is because I kind of feel like there's so many problems and it feels like I know that people, I don't think like people have bad intentions, like human beings, but just like, I know people can have good intentions, but then I always feel like, oh, and what does it really ever amount to? And so I don't know, talking about Alicia just like makes those feelings I just shared. I usually have like kind of lessen a bit. Like, I feel like there is more like oh, I'm excited to know if there's people, and I should say in our bonus episode with her, she shares, she shares about working with an organization um, that talks about, or that is doing this type of work in like the tea industry. And I thought that was interesting because I'm thinking about other industries, like the industries I'm interested in, like fashion and clothing, and then also about crystals, right? Um, and I'm showing on the video to Zara, like I'm holding like a crystal here, right? Like, do we know how our crystals um, get mined? Like, and like, yeah, it's cool if you go to like a cute little crystal shop and buy your crystals, but like who supplies those crystals? Like, do they know like how things are getting mined and um, the process of it all? And and there's like exploitation there. Uh, spoiler, there's exploitation, exploitation there as well. Um, so I'm going to stop there because I'm just rambling now. Sorry, Zara, you can go on. Um, no, I think that's so true because I personally stopped buying crystals a few years ago for myself for the same for that reason, because I was like, everyone has crystals everywhere sells crystals like this is too much. These can't if diamonds are not being sourced ethically and other precious metals and jewels, there's no way crystals are like uh um, sorry, I know we're talking about crystals and that wasn't what I was thinking about. So now my brain is just a little flustered, but it, it I don't know. I, I'm really happy we got to talk to Alicia because it is inspiring to hear people who just, I don't know, know, and not even like know what they're doing in the world because nobody fucking knows what they're doing, but just I think there's something to be said that all of us play a role in building the world we want to be a part of, you know what I mean? And it's like, don't ever assume just because you have to, I don't know, like, you don't have to like your path doesn't have to look exactly like you want it to look for it to be for you to do something that matters. You know what I mean? I think that was one of the things like that I really gauged from what Alicia was saying is like, oh, I wanted to work in human trafficking and I wanted to do this, but then I needed a job. And so I was working at Apple and then I came out, you know, it's like, keep honest about what your passions are. Don't like, obviously you can do, we all, like I said about the good place, we all are basically being challenged with all of our morals and integrities every moment of every day uh, because the way our system is set up, but like stay true to like your core of who you are and what you believe and what you think is good and right for the world. 
and like be open to the adjustments that life has to throw at you. And that will help, you know, the world at large. Like, I don't know. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment I took away from the work that she's doing as well is just like, you know, when you hear business school, you're not like, ah, yes, human rights, you know, but yeah, business and human rights. Why do those not go together? Why can decolonization and business like business school not work in tandem? And I understand, yes, in an ideal world, we would deconstruct all of these systems, but like, I don't know, like when they're like rebuilding your highway around you, and I don't know if this is just like a Florida thing or like an Orlando I-4 thing. Everyone hates I-4. If you are from the area, you know that. Um, But like you can't just stop building on the highway and say nobody can take the highway for the next six months while we break it all down and rebuild it. You know, you have to close lanes. You have to build this part. You have to take apart this part. It's very like sectional, you know, it's not a one quick smooth, oh, they closed the road overnight and then it was all fixed. I mean, sometimes in little places we can do that. And I think that's representative of the way we change the world, right? It's not going to be, all right, shut all the businesses down for six months and then we'll figure out all the problems and we'll implement all the solutions. And then, then we can restart again. That I, in my ideal world, that's that would be what happens because it seems the easiest and the most understandable. But that's not going to happen because we live in a in a world driven by profits, corporate profits, and Elon Musk's penis. Um, I'm that was a joke about how he thinks with his dick. Uh, <laughs> No, because I'm here face palming like, oh my gosh, why are we bringing up Elon Musk's penis on our podcast? Like, <laughs> I was going to say Jeff Bezos, but I couldn't remember his name at the time. And I feel like Elon Musk's name is something all of us can't forget at this point. And even, we've been reverse eternal spotlight. Spot, spot, oh my it? gosh. Spotlight. Yes. Yes. I know exactly. Yes. We have been. Like yeah. we have, like Eternal he's sunshine of memory. the spotless mind. Yeah, he's rever- we they reverse did that to all of us. Um, that's what the Twitter thing was, is him doing that. Anyways, um, but yeah, like we're not gonna shut everything down. So like we should be working within the ways that we can make things better and like the little parts that we can do and keep working in that direction, and hope that climate change doesn't kill us all before then. Um, again, it is also very nice to have seven on the podcast because eternal hopeful. And I like to call myself an eternal optimist, but you know, it's good to have someone who's practical and implementing that. Yeah, I will say I really appreciate um Alicia. And I mean, I can't say that enough. I really appreciate Alicia and I think she's cool and wonderful. And I really appreciate at all um that there is this even the idea of decolonizing business school, which she shared a little bit about and decolonizing like the curriculum, which she shared a bit about. I feel like that just makes me feel like it's not just hope, but I just feel more um, at ease, I guess. Like I feel more easeful knowing that in this awful, terrible world where lots of things are horrible that at least I feel like oh but there are cool people like her there are sevens there are wonderful sevens such as Alicia who is doing work that 
is very important. And also, you know, she mentioned like going to conventions with other people um, in like grad school doing cool shit as well. And I'm like, thank goodness. like thank goodness um because here we have me the four who's just like I don't know um thinking about all these things of course doing things my own way um but who really appreciates that perspective of like of hope as you say Zara so that's how that's how that's why I'm taking away yes and I think the last thing I want to say which I don't know you can correct me, but I feel like more people are abolitionists. Like, I feel like we like, not like we and everyone else is on the inside, but like we like to stand more at the margins of society in the sense of like, I don't want to fall into being a cog in the machine. So how can I like fight against that in a way? And while I, I don't know that I believe you can you know, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, from the inside, we can deconstruct it and fix it from the inside. I don't know if that's true, but it does feel nice to know that there are a lot of people who are, I will say, quote unquote, working in the machine, so to speak, in the sense that like in corporations, you have CSRs or like corporate social responsibility departments, and you have people like Alicia in grad school who are like, helping to educate people on business ethics and also helping to build up like workers, worker-driven social responsibility groups, right? So it's like, I feel like more people are abolitionists who are quote unquote in the machine, if academia and corporate world are the machine, who are, you know, they're abolitionists. They want the thing undone, but they just know, you know, it, it gives hope that it's like, okay, there are people doing the work. Like you said, it is a whole process and it needs all of us. It doesn't just need those of us who want to stand outside and do it. Those of us who want to be a little bit in it. Those of us who want to be totally out of it. Like we just got to stick to the values and the goals of abolition, which is like the stuff needs to be taken down. We figure out what our role is. And yeah. Um, also again, so grateful to have had Alicia on the pod and to know Alicia and to be friends with her for so, so many years. Um, yeah. Uh, have friends who are fucking brilliant and kind people who inspire you. That's if that's one big takeaway from this. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to everyone listening, thank you so much. We really appreciate you and we hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. And bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Thoughtful Wellness Revolution podcast. For bonus content, you can go to thoughtfulwellnessrevolution.substack.com and subscribe for $5 a month. You can also follow us on Instagram at thoughtfulwellnessrevolution to share your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you're listening.